Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, Episode 26. Curriculum is always exclusionary. But what I mean is you can't teach everything. You just can't, right? And so you're excluding things. Now, maybe the district is, or maybe your department chair is, or depending on how that dynamic works. But somebody is making decisions about what goes in and what goes out. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, teachers and educators, and welcome to this episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast, and welcome to 2021. Oh my goodness. 2020 is over. Um, and I hope uh, you had a wonderful New Year celebration, and I am excited to kick off your new year with this conversation today with Dr. Robert Helfenbein. Um, and we actually got connected through um, Dr. Bonnie Wozlek, who I had on a previous episode. Uh, and we originally connected with the idea that we were going to discuss um, this concept of new materialism and uh, other contemporary education theory. Um, but really, we kind of dove into uh, two, two things, actually. It's kind of like a two-part episode. We started out with curriculum theory and what that actually means. Um, and really, the, the difference between the formal curriculum, which is what's sitting on your shelf or in a binder somewhere, <laughs> and the enacted curriculum, what it actually is that you're doing in the classroom that transitions the knowledge to the learner. Right. So a, a great conversation around that. And then we shift over to... Um, this idea of critical geography, which is uh, kind of something that uh, Robert here is is working on because um, he's got a book coming out here shortly about it. But it's the idea that a place and a space have an effect on the enacted curriculum, right? Not just the curriculum that's written in that notebook somewhere, but what we actually do in our classroom and what students experience has to do with the critical geography, where they are that where they are in in space, where they are in time, um, and that that's also just a really cool conversation. So I'm excited for you to hear all about both of those. Before we get to the episode, though, I want to remind you that I send out a weekly email newsletter. Um, really, it's just a reminder that uh, a new episode is out and kind of gives you a highlight of that episode so you know what you're going to uh, be listening to. Um, so I send that out once a week, and occasionally I'll send out an additional one, um, really just in case I'm doing something special. Like I did a contest earlier. Um, I now have T-shirts available for you to buy, uh, Jabadoo Original Teacher Tees. Uh, those are available on the website. Um, anything like that, uh, I send out that weekly email. So I would love for you to be a part of that. You can sign up for that newsletter at jabadoo.com slash show26, which is the show notes for this episode. Uh, everything that we talk about on this episode, all the links to all the resources, uh, any of the books that are mentioned, you can find affiliate links uh, for purchasing those books on the show notes page. So um, a lot of great uh, information on that page, but also a couple of different ways that you can support this podcast uh, by either purchasing one of those Jabadoo original teacher tees, or uh, if you hear a book that you're interested in reading, uh, any of the affiliate links for those books, they are all on the show notes page again at jabadoo.com slash show 26. And with that, let's get into my interview with Dr. Robert Helfenbein. All right, on today's episode, I have Robert Helfenbein. 
Uh, he is the Associate Dean of Research and Faculty Affairs in the Tiff College of Education at Mercer University in Atlanta. He has served as editor of the Journal of Curriculum Theorizing and has published and edited numerous research articles and book chapters about contemporary education analysis in urban contexts and has co-edited several books and now has a new book that is on its way titled Critical Geographies of Education, Inquiries into Space, Place, and Curriculum. Did I get it all right? <laughs> Sounds right. Sounds Great to be right. here. <laughs> yeah, Robert, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we got linked up through uh, Bonnie Wozlik, um, who was, uh, I should know which episode she was on, but she was a few episodes back and um, kind of reached out to you and said, hey, seems like he's a, a good candidate for uh, an episode. So uh, here we are. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to Bonnie. It's uh, great to talk to you. Yeah. So um, I was doing some research into you and some of the research that you do, and I was a little lost, I got to say, <laughs> in some of the stuff. Um, so curriculum theory is, uh, you know, kind of something that you work on. Um, but the, just the notion of theory, by definition, means that it's not a hard set concept yet, right? It's really just uh, the gears are turning and, and you're kind of working some stuff out. Yeah, I mean... Well, <laughs> I think curriculum, um, curriculum theory is really trying to emphasize that we need to understand what is going on with theory or with curriculum, rather. We need mm -hmm. to understand it um, as opposed to simply creating it and assessing it, right? So there was a very right. intentional move in the 70s saying, well, wait a minute, like maybe we need to ask some questions about um, why this curriculum is what it is, right? What are the forces... Right that uh, might have worked on it, right, and, and shaped it as it, as it um, developed over time because it didn't happen in any kind of neutral way, right, or outside of a historical moment or outside of political pressures. Right. Uh, and you can see these fights, you know, school board meetings, newspaper articles. Um, quite frankly, uh, you know, the president, uh, you know, recently, you know, put out this um, executive order against um, uh, any kind of anti-racist teaching or critical race theory um, in education or, or equity work, um, saying that it was anti-American and, and propaganda. Now, hmm. that's a that's huge. That's the president yeah, of the United States. Yeah, that's the president of the United States saying, here's what you can teach and here's yeah. what you can't. Right. So, so by, by nature, event. yeah, everything's yeah. intertwined. And obviously, yeah. uh, the older you get, I feel like that's a lesson that you learn. I'm, I'm constantly, you know, in my ripe old age of 28, <laughs> figuring, right. figuring out how intertwined everything is. Um, yeah. So I, I appreciate that preview and that uh, clarification. But before we get too deep into it, let's sure. take you back. So uh, you actually started out as a social studies teacher uh, in middle school and high school for a few years. Uh, but before that, you were a student in the K-12 system. So um, what was your experience? You know, maybe some highs and lows as you were coming through uh, K-12 and, and some of the influences that kind of pushed you in the direction that you that you took. Oh, you don't even know what you just opened up. There. <laughs> <laughs> that, so, does, does that make me a good interviewer? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We we'll see. <laughs> Well, my story is kind of um, uh, maybe a little on the unusual side in the sense that my parents took me out of the public school in mm. the fifth grade. And so I attended a very, very conservative, 
Christian school from the middle of fifth grade through graduation. Um, I am an alumni of that school, although um, I really kind of consider myself a survivor, quite frankly. Hmm. Um, and it was an, um, a pretty rough experience that I think did have some, some formative effects on me. Um, that uh, we probably don't have enough time to talk about. Um, <laughs> I'm also not a registered psychologist, so. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you asked, brother. Um, <laughs> but um, that, you know, and, and I didn't know this then, right? But um, I started learning some things about the, this was in North Carolina too, by the way. Okay. And so this school um, happened coincidentally, I'm using scare quotes, on the radio. Um, but um, coincidentally, it opened up the year that they desegregated the schools in North Carolina. So it Again, would be coincidentally, right? Yes, well, it's coincidentally. Yes, exactly. So what this was what we would call a white flight school, uh, that when they desegregated the um, schools, um, these all these private, small Christian, mm -hmm. often um, schools and academies opened up as part of a resistance to school desegregation. Um, again, I didn't know that at the time. And it's certainly that was not something they talked about publicly. Um, sure. but as I look back on it and some of the experiences, I, a lot of things start to click and start to make sense. Um, I mean, interestingly, my, my year, we, my senior year was the first black graduate. We had one black student in our mm. senior class and, um, she was the first to graduate, uh, from that particular school. So um, it, it, interestingly, too, it kind of billed itself as academically superior to public schools. Um, but well, that's what, the reason for anything not being a public school, right? Is that it's yeah. supposed to be superior? Yeah, right. Um, so what we what became pretty evident pretty quick uh, is that it was a joke, um, and. Uh, because one, I had friends that left and went to public schools. And so I had a sense of how much homework they were doing, what they were reading, or, you know, what their things were. And luckily for me, I was a, was an already a deep and avid reader um, and really kind of doing a lot of, frankly, supplemental education on my own. Mm. Um, I also tested really well. Um, and so even though my, the, the education part uh, was pretty poor with a, maybe a couple exceptions, um, but pretty poor um, for the, that whole tenure, um, I still did well enough to get into UNC Chapel Hill. And um, when I, um, there was a huge awakening for me um, beginning in college and, and not least of which that awakening was realizing that I didn't know how to work hard academically um, because I, I never had to, um, not at the Christian school anymore. Yeah. So then what, what was it that did you immediately decide that when you got to Chapel Hill that I was going to be a social studies teacher or is that a, a journey in, in, a, in and of itself at the university? Yeah, it was a journey. Um, <laughs> and it, my and my parents were not too happy about it, um, sadly, um, for a long time. <laughs> um, and I think they won. Some of that was out of concern um, that, you know, in this you know, this was in the early 90s. Um, and so, you know, graduating from college and, you know, I think I started at $21,000 a year. Mm -hmm. um, I had to work in a restaurant. Um, I cooked in restaurants through college, um, to, you know, just to supplement um, 
income. And so I cooked in restaurants my uh, first almost four years of teaching um, because I couldn't pay the rent. Yeah. Even though I was a certified full time. Yep. yep College degree. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So, no, it wasn't an obvious solution, but clearly I was attracted to the social studies. And at some, you know, moving into your junior year, you kind of have to pick a major. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I knew that I have my sister's four years younger. So I knew I couldn't, I had to graduate in four because I knew my family couldn't afford both of us. Um, So I said, what what do I like? And what I liked was talking about ideas, reading books and talking about ideas with people. Hmm. Sounds like maybe a social studies teacher is what I need to do. Um, So that's really how it, um, really how it happened. Very cool. So, um, yeah, so coming out of college, then uh, first job was middle school and then uh, got your master's and went to high school. Um, And what would you say was uh, the, the factor when you, as a teacher, um, you know, the, different people say different things about the best job about being teaching from, you know, the impact that you have on the future generations or June, July, and August. Um, <laughs> but uh, what was it that you eventually said, you know what, K-12 is not where I'm going to leave my impact. I'm going to go to higher education. And you mm. went back and you got your PhD. Yeah. Uh, um, interesting. Um, so one, I had, I had fantastic um, experiences in higher education. Obviously, UNC Chapel Hill is a, you know, famously uh, great institution, mm-hmm. um, had unbelievable professors there. Um, but that was also true at Appalachian State University, where I got my master's and where I focused in geography and history, social science, but geography being the main focus. And I had a, one of my favorite professors of all time um, really said to me, you can do PhD level work. Uh, and that to me was kind of always in the back of my head. Now I didn't have the money to go get a PhD. Mm-hmm. So I went back and taught high school um, for a while. Um, but it was always there, right? This, this educator that I really, really respected, he was phenomenal, said to me, you can do this. Right? And that always stuck. I, just, um, I, I, I want to take a pause for a second because how often do we as teachers have that opportunity to do that to some of our students, right? And yeah. it might be that student who is on your nerves all the time and you say, I don't want to give him this compliment right now because he's driving me nuts. And I say he because nine times out of 10, let's be honest. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's that that one little nugget that has that stuck with you. And um, I just wanted to pause and highlight that because that's I think that's fantastic. So. Oh, it was, yeah, it was monumental and, and um, really, you know, effective in kind of guiding some career choices that happened years later, right? You know, it stuck with me to that, to that degree. It's, it's seeing somebody other than yourself believe in you, Yeah. right? How important that is and how uh, effective that is. Yeah. Um, and we can do that every day as teachers. That's, that's right. That's, that's, that's what I love about it. So. Um, yeah, it's it's a phenomenal it's a phenomenal it's a weighty thing um, to think about um, about how much influence we can have on on people uh, as teachers, and you never quite know what's the thing, right? You know, it's, it's oh, of course, very often not the the halftime speech. You know, it's this inter- informal interaction. You know? it's, it's absolutely, uh, and yeah. uh, I think as my mom said, you know, you probably don't see ninety percent of those the the outcomes of, you know, those, those nuggets that you've left, those, those brain worm or the brain worms, what is it? Um, 
what's the <laughs> the phrase for a thought that sticks in your head? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. It's yeah, not right, right. I just right. made something up. Uh, I think yeah. I was thinking bookworm, but <laughs> yeah, let's talk about brainworms. But I, okay, yes. <laughs> well, and then the the other part of the story though is um, I was I loved um, being a high school teacher. Um, I really liked middle school too. I know a lot of people are terrified about middle school primarily <laughs> because of middle schoolers. Um, I really liked it, um, but I think I was a better high school teacher. And and the reason is, and you you noted this in the in the beginning, but I'm I'm very comfortable in kind of abstract thinking, um, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not as interested in concrete. Uh, and of course, I'm what I'm talking about there is kind of developmentally. In middle school, they're right on the cusp, right? They're mm-hmm. they're still pretty concrete, but they're starting to get that abstract understanding. Uh, and then as I got into high school, where they were really developing that kind of abstract thinking, I think I was better at that. I think that's more of who I am and how I, I think about things. So even though I really liked high school, I think I was a better, I mean, middle school, I think I was a better high school teacher. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, to your question is what ended up happening is I, I was asked to um, take a student teacher. And I said, no. And uh, a assistant principal who I really quite res- respected quite a bit, uh, Beth Cochran is her name, as a matter of fact, um, shout came down Beth. and <laughs> yep, shout out to Beth, still in Wake County Public Schools, I believe. But she came down and, and basically kind of yelled at me. Why would you say <laughs> no to this? Da, da, da. Um, but the reason, the reason I said, I want to teach. What, what am I going to, you want me to sit in the back of the room while this college kid comes in and you know, teaches my class. Like I like to teach. I want to teach. I would rather do that. Right. And basically she, she talked me into it, um, threw some guilt on me, um, that I had a responsibility (laughs) to the next generation and truth be told, I actually really loved it. I really loved working with, uh, pre-service teachers and in particular student teachers in the classroom, working with them, you know, in, in very specific classroom learning moments, but also outside of that, thinking about preparation. You know, I was a social studies teacher, so like, you're gonna have to read up on, man. You know, we're not quite there on ancient Rome, and I can't have you rolling into my ancient Rome unit, you know, if you don't, yeah. <laughs> if, you don't if you don't know it, right? <laughs> so I actually really loved it. And that's when that voice in the back of my head that said, you could do PhD level. That brain worm. <laughs> that brain worm. <laughs> I'm co- you got a new, you got a thing now. I'm coining it. <laughs> you got a thing. But that's when it came back. And I, I, I used to call it like kind of my Amway theory of social change, right? Which is, okay. well, if I'm a really, let's say I'm a, hypothetically, right? I'm, let's say I'm a really good high school teacher. Maybe I can fire up, what, 90 kids a year, maybe, right? Assuming not doesn't yeah. go great with everybody, right? Mm-hmm. But if I'm a really great teacher of teachers and I can fire up 25 folks that go be social studies teachers and they go out and influence and fire up 90 people, right? Students. Now we're, now we're talking about something, yeah. right? So kind of yeah. scaling it up a little bit. Absolutely. So that's kind of how the, how the things came together, um, you know, in terms of a, of a career. Yeah. And I think that's not an un, uncommon, I, I've said it numerous times, probably listeners are tired of hearing me say it, but uh, the desire to have that impact and the more impact we can have, um, you know, we, I think we kind of naturally shoot for 
for those goals. So, um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I love hearing backstories uh, of people and it kind of, like you said, like we said earlier, maybe before we even hit record, but, uh, everything is so intertwined. So, uh, understanding your, your history and your background, I think hopefully gives us a, a better picture um, at least a, a fuller picture of, of the work that you're doing now. So um, your teaching experience was in urban settings, right? Was that, right. Um, yeah. which, which city was that? Raleigh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. So, um, so naturally then you're inclined to do with your PhD, PhD work, um, you gave service back to, to those urban settings uh, with some of the stuff that you're doing. So um, let's, let's dive in. Here we go. <laughs> so curriculum theory, as, as we said before, um, you know, that, that concept of, of taking a, a better look at the curriculum and asking those questions, why? Um, so you're, st- you're still involved in social studies curriculum for the most part, right? Uh, yeah, well, different types of curriculum. Um, and so, you know, just very simply, we can think about curriculum as, as um, some type of intention, right, behind the selection of things that we want to teach learners. Right. So okay. there needs to be some intention there for, for, I think, to call it curriculum. Right. Okay. Now, as soon as you acknowledge that there's an intention, what you're getting at is that, well, then there's an author. Right. And sure. then authors uh, have biases. Right. And mm-hmm. they have um, perspectives and they have influences and they have assumptions. And so once you start to think about any learning situation in that way, you can kind of take some, some tools that are developed through what's called curriculum studies um, and curriculum theory to kind of take a look at how that's working, right? Now, the obvious example would be things related to, you know, negative things related to biases. And mm-hmm. So like an easy one, um, you know, if you, if you are uh, a male teacher who thinks girls aren't good at math, so in your math class, you call on the boys more, right? You reward them more because you really think it's kind of a waste of time for the girls in there anyway, right? You know? yeah. So that's an example of where your bias affects how you operate within that classroom, which actually is part of what gets learned, right? Because right. the girls in that classroom start to think to themselves, yeah. maybe I'm not good at this. He doesn't call on me. He doesn't support me. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, encourage this work. So maybe math isn't for me. So even though the the formal curriculum of that class might be algebra, right? Right. Informal thing that the girls learned was math isn't for girls. Yeah. So as you were talking about things being intertwined, you see how we suddenly get into the sociological pretty quickly. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And you, you, just the the concept of curriculum to me, like you say that, and I think, okay, there's my books on the shelf. That's my curriculum over there. Um, but curriculum as as a broader term, just being the anything that has intention that goes into the learning, right? And that and that influences those moments, right? So I would even argue that um, there's a term called the enacted curriculum, right? So. Okay. There is that set of books or that three ring binder that used to be three ring binders when I was teaching, <laughs> get one of those big overstuffed binders and that's your curriculum for, you know, world Civ, right. For me, yep. a big class I taught all the time. Um, and then of course, once you do it a little bit, you never touch that binder again, right. right. It just collects yeah. kind of dust. Right. But even when you were using it, what's important 
I mean, what's in the binder is important. The formal curriculum is important, right? But it's certainly not alone, and it's certainly not as important as all the other things that go into that moment when you're interacting with learners. That's a curricular moment, right? And it is loaded with all kinds mm. of things, right? Both that formal curriculum, but also informal curriculum. Um, so like for an example, and I actually had a student tell me this one time, like years later, one of those rare interactions where I saw one of my former students yeah. and they said, Hey, Mr. Elfenbein. And I was like, Oh, Hey, great to see you. You know, I think it was at the mall at Christmas time. <laughs> not this you, year. <laughs> not, no, no, it wasn't. Good. Sorry. Yeah. So, sensitive topic. Um, <laughs> but what he said to me was, he's like, Hey, Mr. Elfenbein, do you know, do you know how we knew it was going to be a good class? I was like, no, I, no. How did, how did you know it was going to be a good class? It's like, well, you remember how you were always in the hallway in between classes? Like, yeah, because that was a thing. Like, so one, they wanted us in the hallway in between classes because that's where mischief yeah. happened, right? But I also like talking to my kid. I like being out there, talking to them, saying yeah. hi, and, you know, welcoming them into the classroom. And he said, we knew it was going to be a good class if you had a book under your arm. And I was like, mm. what? He's like, yeah, because you would sometimes be out there and you'd have a book under your arm. And we'd say, hey, what's the book? And then you'd, you'd wave it around, right? And I would joke around. I'd say, you guys aren't even ready for this. You can't even handle this, <laughs> right? And it was never the textbook, of course, right? Now, I hadn't really thought about it in kind of super explicit, conscious ways, but my informal curriculum was that I wanted students to see that social studies is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And probably the least interesting place it is, is in that textbook, right? <laughs> but it's everywhere, right? Yeah. And I wanted students to value and read books, right? Yeah. So now I have some language in curriculum theory, right? Well, that was my informal curriculum. That wasn't in what Wake County Public Schools handed to me when I signed my contract. That was what I brought to it, right? Because I valued some. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's an example of like the formal. Now, I used the, those books to teach the formal curriculum, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I used it. Right? It's way more interesting to, to talk about the history of baseball when we're thinking about desegregating American cities, right? That's a good, pretty good example. You can talk about yeah. how baseball does that. You're still getting to the formal curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. But you're doing it in ways that perhaps um, are more engaging. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Mike Soskal, I just had him on uh, most recent podcast. I'm not sure if you heard that one, um, but he, uh, teacher of the year from Pennsylvania, um, and he told a story about uh, how his, he teaches fourth and fifth grade STEM and his students were, uh, doing uh, a video conference with students in, I think it was Nigeria uh, or Kenya, Kenya. And they, the, the town over in Kenya, there was a river that, that broke the town in half and the kids on the other side of the river had to cross this bridge. And in the flooding season, the bridge was not stable enough for them to cross. So even none of the kids on the other side of the river got school for a month and a half or whatever it was. And his kids Again, using that curriculum, they learned Newton's laws of, of physics and they designed a bridge and they sent the prince over. They figured out how much it was going to cost. They did the fundraising and they paid for this bridge over in Kenya out of fourth and fifth grade students. It's amazing. I mean, that, that's not written in a textbook. No, you think it's they beautiful. Learned? 
But think about all the different things they're doing, right? They're doing math. They're doing, but they're also doing, I would argue they're also doing geography because they're thinking sure. about space and place. They're, you can make a civics argument because they're thinking about access to school. Just because you live on the wrong side of the river means you don't get access to school. That's not right. So, I mean, think about the breadth of that as a curricular example. It's phenomenal. Yeah. So if anybody who hasn't heard that episode yet, that's episode 25 with Mike Soskell. Go listen. He's, he's fantastic. I love chatting with him. But anyway, yeah. So getting back to uh, this this concept of curriculum theory um, is just fascinating to me because you're talking about all these intangibles, right? How, what the individual teacher brings to that. So when you're doing theory or analysis of these curriculums, um, how is all of that factored in, you know, when it's not a tangible thing? Ah, good. Uh, it's a, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. I mean, the so one, if you emphasize what what I brought up a moment ago, the, the enacted curriculum, that means you got to get in the classrooms, right? So, mm-hmm. in other words, you, you're going to have to do what we it's what we would call qualitative research, right? In um, instead of you know, quantitative, which is just digits yeah. and numbers and checks and all that yeah. stuff, yeah, qualitative. Yeah, we need good quantitative too. But you know, mm-hmm. if I if I believe or if I want to emphasize, and I'm my object of analysis is that enacted curriculum, right? Then I've got to get into classrooms. I can't just, um, you know, buy copies of the textbooks and, and write my curriculum paper from that, right? I've got to go see yeah. what happens in these classrooms. And I've got to spend time there. Um, now, that's not the only way to do curriculum research. But from what kind of what I'm talking about, really emphasizing learning as this interaction between people right? That is fluid. It's fixed, right? And it's not the same when you repeat it, right? Which by the way, every teacher knows, right? Yeah. Why did this lesson completely bomb in second period, but just rocked in fifth period? Same same lesson I played. Well, one, no, it's not because you learn some things, right? As you do it. Sure. But that's another example. The the kids are different, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The moment's different. Something bad happened at lunch or didn't happen at lunch or what, you know, all of those things are human factors that are part of this interaction, which is where that learning happens. It's a mediated thing, right? It's not, um, you know, kids are not blank slates. Yeah, of course. Um, they're not. They're bringing all their those life experiences that they have into that classroom too, right? And and physical needs and mental needs and psychosocial and all of, all of those kinds of things. But the learning happens in moments, in spaces. So if we really want to get at that, then people like me, meaning university researchers, <laughs> no, we got to get off our campus and get to yours, right? If, if we really want to have some deep understandings of that. Again, there's right. other ways to do curriculum work. This is kind mm-hmm. of one particular um, area of emphasis. Yeah, sure. Um, and that's been, uh, it, it transitions nicely into two different things, actually. One is just, uh, I've, I've had a shift in my focus into, um, I, I think there's this, there's this divide between K-12 education and higher education. Um, and part of that is research, right? There's a, there's a much higher focus on doing the research at universities and colleges and institutions. And part of me is now like, well, if the teachers in the K-12 are the ones who start to do some of that work, I feel like that, that divide gets, that's, that divide gets smaller. So, um, yeah, that's, that would be just one thing that I took away, uh, from that. But the other thing is, uh, you mentioned the spaces, right? 
Yeah. Uh, sorry, did you? I, you looked like you had something yeah. you wanted to say to that. Go ahead. Let me, yeah, let me respond to that because I think it is a nice connection. So uh, for years, I have usually in a master's degree in education, almost it doesn't matter what it is, but there's usually at least one class in curriculum. And I've taught that class at multiple institutions, right, over mm -hmm. my career. And the reason I'm kind of laughing about it is I love teaching it because the students, which in this case are usually practicing in-service teachers, yep. right? Working on a master's, you know, maybe a principal certificate, maybe a reading literacy certificate, ed tech, something like that. Sure. Um, they usually think the course is going to be terrible. <laughs> now it's kind of to talk about curriculum. Yeah. Oh, they dread <laughs> it. They're like, Oh my God. And so, <laughs> well, one, it's kind of great because if I do anything interesting, it's already a win. Right. So it's like, <laughs> that's fair. The bar is very low. The bar is low. <laughs> um, it's like seeing a movie you think isn't going to be any good. Right. <laughs> um, so, but what I, what I started doing was getting very explicit. And I said, listen, on the first night of class, um, I, my goal here is to explode whatever notion you have of what curriculum is. I'm going to explode it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so those moments when you're like, wow, this is crazy. Why are we even thinking about it this way? Know that I'm doing that on purpose. Right? Hmm. And the reason I bring that up is usually, and maybe not everybody, let's be honest, right? But I'd say the vast majority at the end often tell me this was the most useful class as a practicing teacher. We thought it was going to be the least, right? It's the most useful because it's actually kind of a set of tools to think about what you do as a teacher every single day. Yeah. And I usually do it with, with a, a beginning with some curriculum history, which, you know, some people find a little dry, but the thing about it is it shows you that curriculum is not neutral. Curriculum changes over time. Yeah. It's context, right? Yeah. It's not an accident that these things were emphasized at this point, and then it shifted and went to this point. And, mm -hmm. and now, of course, what's a little depressing is some of the same fights that we're having now about curriculum. We had a hundred happened. Years. Yeah, a hundred years ago, we had the same fight. Yeah. You know. History um, does repeat itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anytime you as I've I've had uh, so I'm working on my master's as well right now, and um, there's been a number of times throughout different classes where you're asked to stop and reflect on something that you're doing in the classroom. And anytime you get a, even a, a 30 second, just break at the end of your class, you go, man, why was that so bad? Or why was that so good? Being intentional about that reflection is kind of the process that you're doing just on a larger scale. Right. right. Um, but anytime you get to just sit and ask, you know, why am I doing this activity? Why am I, why, why am I doing this over here? Why did that work? Why didn't that work? Um, yeah. Those questions that you ask yourself, and if you can find answers to it, great. But sometimes even just asking the question so that it's at the forefront of your mind now um, gives you a, a better picture moving forward as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other, you have one more thing? Sure. So the, <laughs> other, the other thing is, um, the, I mean, and this is, you know, there's, um, there's no charge for this, no extra fee. I okay. <laughs> um, but is that curriculum is always exclusionary. And that's always exclusionary. One that it's always exclusionary. Okay. And so this is this is something for teachers that they usually have to wrestle with a little bit. They do the same thing. Like, what do you mean, right? Well, what I mean is you can't teach everything. You just can't, right? right? right. So what that means is 
There will always be more content than time to teach it. Yeah. That's right. And so you're excluding things. Now, maybe the district is, or maybe your department chair is, or depending yeah. on how that dynamic mm. works. But somebody is making decisions about what goes in and what goes out. Now, if that's true, and it is, right, then the question becomes an ethical one. So am I excluding the right things? Am I including the right things? Mm -hmm. Am I just doing this because we've always done it? Or am I actively, I would say, what we need to do is foreground the needs of these learners that are sitting in front of me, right? That your learners in, you know, in Philly might be different than mine down here in Atlanta. Yeah, so sure. we might make different decisions, right? But the question is, am I making, is it being intentional about what is in the curriculum? There, now we have an ethical component. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and specific to me because I'm a music teacher, um, music theory and and how we talk about harmony and all this stuff comes straight out of Europe. There's very yeah. little influence for American theory of music um, from other countries around the world. So that's been something in the last few years for me to, to really focus on bringing in different yeah. musics from around the world just to, again, give that broader exposure and a uh, little less bias bias that goes into it but yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then you have to keep doing it you know yeah oh yeah it's a it's a kind of a way of, che of checking your own bias right and yeah. it's another way of doing that and continually saying well okay so these were the choices i made last year right so are they the right ones this year do i want to redo mm -hmm. this do i want to reorganize and once teachers kind of get that they see that because they know they do that right but once they recognize that then suddenly this question of curriculum has one really opened up, right? And now it becomes an ethical imperative, right? Are we doing making the right choices? Let's talk about it. Sure. I know. And right? they probably won't ever, there, there is never going to be a yes and no to that. It, it'll always be a discussion, but um, the goal of that discussion being towards equity and inclusion for all and all that, all that good stuff. But yeah. uh, you said something a few minutes ago. I want to, I want to transition to it really quick before we wrap up. Um, you said something about spaces and that's, you've got a new book coming out that it kind of talks about that, um, which brings in the geographies that we mentioned earlier, brings in some of these other things. Um, and it's the new book again, titled critical geographies of education inquiries into space, place and curriculum. So it ties it all together nicely. Can you just give us a, a highlight? What's in that book and why did you write it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's kind of been, it has been the thread of my um, scholarly career. Um, but I can, you know, I can really trace it in some ways back to my experience as a high school teacher. Um, and a quick story uh, is even, I was a social studies teacher, as we talked about, but my classroom was on what was known as the special education hallway. Okay. Right. Now, again, I didn't, it took me a while to kind of start thinking about this, right? I liked it because my classroom, well, I liked it because my classroom was far away from the principal's office, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because let's be honest, right? I'll be honest right now. Mine, mine is the furthest, yeah. I think, other than maybe the room below me. I, I am one of the furthest from yeah. me. Yeah. So generally, I can close my door and I can do what I need to do. Nobody's going to bother you. Yep. My classroom <laughs> space is our space, and I we co-create that with my kids and mm. and um, you know, some little radical educator educator stuff. So I was fine with it. But then it started to hit me that it was, wait a minute, this is the special education hall. So why is the special education hallway 
far away as far where it is as far away from the front door mm. from the principal's office i mean you really you gotta you've gotta go there right you, you, you're not gonna yeah. stumble on this was a big urban high school so it was um third floor you know mm-hmm. uh, so then I, I started thinking about that right well that's kind of interesting and then i, I raised it I, I did actually team taught i had an inclusion classroom with a special educator who was phenomenal it was a great experience um and I asked her, I said, I asked, kind of brought it up. And she goes, well, Rob, you know that you're considered um, special ed friendly, right? So on one hand, that's a compliment. Right. Right. But then on the other hand, like, wait a minute, you mean everybody's not special ed friendly? Because I don't know what other people do. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, do you mean, so you mean others aren't? It's like, oh, God, Rob, they wouldn't work with, with us or with our kids. So I was somewhat shocked right and yeah. foolishly naively i guess but then my social justice instincts kind of kicked in a little bit like well that's not right it's messed up right so one reason that's that's one reason why i'm up there right is because i'm friendly to special education and so therefore i'm kind of not on the social studies hall i'm over on the special ed hall mm-hmm. um and again it worked out great for me but uh that's interesting and then i also thought about what about having visitors right? You know, they're not going to see special education students, students with special needs. And I started thinking, well, what classroom is right by the front door? 12th grade AP English. Yep. <laughs> right. So the parents, I, honestly, I was going to guess that I was going to say either, either an AP class or an English class. <laughs> yeah. Now that teacher, she was a great teacher, but still, um, you can see what's how I'm starting to think. Yeah. Like so trying. they're organizing the spaces of this school to make themselves look good, right? And to kind of really maybe even reinforce some of these tendencies that aren't that aren't that good. And they're not in the spirit of equity or social justice. In fact, they're mar- it is marginalization, which by definition is a spatial idea. They're in the margins, right? right? Not in the front. And then I started thinking about, you know, there's a famous book, um, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria, right? Beverly Tatum, I believe. And then I could see that in that school. You could see the racial and class. Class was big at the school as well, social class, mm-hmm. in the cafeteria, right? There's actually a great scene in Mean Girls, if you if you remember that movie. <laughs> I do remember it. But they can't the, tell you the last time I've seen it. but <laughs> The students actually draw a map of the cafeteria and show it to Lindsay Lohan, the new student. Um, that's some great critical geographies right there. There you go. Um, but anyway, that it started raising some questions for me. Like, wait a minute, the spaces of the school themselves are being used, right, towards certain ends, right, that are not necessarily the most equitable or the most progressive. And in this case, right, I also became familiar with the term, soon became familiar with the term second generation segregation, right, where the schools aren't segregated, right? But they're segregated. They're segregated within the school mm-hmm. as you start tracking programs, right? So pretty quickly, um, ninth and tenth grade at that time were pretty um, heterogeneous. But then they started to track pretty good, pretty quickly after that ninth grade mm-hmm. year. And so basically, even though you're in the same school building, you had black kids and white kids that cool. didn't even yeah. cross paths in the hallway. So again, I'm starting to think about this kind of spatially. And then the big kick was my dissertation um, 
study, which was at an after-school computer lab, actually across the street from the high school that I taught at, where the kids, very, the learners there, very often talked about, well, here we can, da 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 da, da whatever it is. But over there, over there. Mm-hmm. we could never, da, da, da. and I realized they were talking in completely spatial terms, right? And there was something about the space of the lab that enabled them to do some things, which I framed as resistance and resilience, because the kids who went to the computer lab were basically the outcasts of the social hierarchy mm. at the school. Um, and it was very, and there was, a, there was a heterogeneous outcast, right? There were, you know, there was black kids, there were queer kids, there were punk rock kids. There was this weird, this is Raleigh, North Carolina, this weird redneck punk uh, conflation. <laughs> I never quite got it, you know, but, you know, this is a while ago, you know, but they're wearing trucker hats, you know, and a Clash t-shirt. And I'm like, wow, what is going on? <laughs> um, super interesting, right? Yeah. But basically, they used the space of the lab as a strategic resource. Um, to basically survive a, a, base, a school system across the street that was designed for them to fail. Hmm. And of course, what became really interesting for me then was, you know, they could have chosen to drop out. And a lot of kids did, right? The dropout rate was, was very high at this particular yeah. point, right? But these kids didn't choose to drop out. They chose to use this lab. And it was the space of the lab where they could work together kind of in strategic resistance and resilience ways. It's what I call spaces of possibility. Like the space enabled them to actually be successful at the school across the street. Yeah, literally literally became a safe space. Quite literally, right? And they they actually, they inverted the social hierarchy, um, which was very interesting. And then once I kind of saw that and, and, and termed that, right? This idea of spaces of possibility, Again, kind of my social justice equity instincts kicked in a little bit. I said, well, if they've done it, that means we could do it in other spaces. And maybe there's other spaces of possibility that we don't know about, right? And so, and then if there are spaces of possibility where kids that are marginalized can find a strategic space to be resilient, then isn't the political project to create more of those spaces? So I know you, you know, you did the interview with, with Dr. Wazilek, who did a lot of work with, I think, what was called then Gay Straight Alliances. But that's yeah. another example of spaces yeah. that enable kids, in that case, I think, to do identity work, you know, where they're, they're developing yeah. identities, they, they're working on things, they're thinking through things, they're feeling things and, and, and figuring things out. There has to be a space for them to do it. And I think some of her writings specifically points to the possibilities that are that are there in in sometimes these um, uh, transitory spaces, right? Sure. Sometimes they're not real, they're not real, they're not formalized because right, yeah. they're kind of subversive. And so that's been an undercurrent of all of my work too. And you know, you noted that I study. You know, I do urban education work. And, and what I've said numerous times is I don't want to write another book or article about failed urban school reform. Yeah. We need that work. I just don't want to do it. Right? I, I would rather write about success. Like where are the spaces where even though the odds are stacked up against these kids and sometimes teachers, right? Sometimes it's teachers that are doing this work, right? And creating those spaces. We know they're out there. So 
and kind of Gloria Ladson Billings did this. You know, there's a famous book called The Dream Keepers, which isn't about how white, isn't about how teachers fail students of color, but it's actually highlighting the, those that are successful. What does that look like, yeah. right? And so I became interested in, the, in these, can I find these spaces of possibility? Um, and I will tell you that I, I've been able to, right? Sometimes they're within formal school structures. Sometimes they're in the basement of a church. Sometimes it's a nonprofit, right? Sometimes, you know, it is that one teacher, you know, that has able to, you know, create some type of cushion, right? Or mm -hmm. some type of yeah. barrier, for, at least temporarily, for these kids to kind of get what they need. Yeah. And that focus on uh, finding the positive uh, is just, I mean, it, it, we, I think we know it now just neurologically that what you focus on teams tends to pop up more often. You know, I, yeah. the, the number, uh, the example that I have said a couple of times is, you know, if you go out and you get a new car, like I've got a, a Subaru Impreza. And as soon as I bought that Subaru Impreza, guess what was on the road all over me now? was a super yeah. Impreza, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's whatever you focus on. So if we're finding these positives and we can focus on these positives, um, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's good to know where the negatives are. It's good to uh, use that information to create, you know, change and, and progress and all the stuff, but to focus on the things that are working and instead of things that aren't, um, yeah, great notion. So, um, yeah. yeah, that book, uh, again, will be coming out uh, in a few months. We will make sure when it does that we'll link it up in these show notes. But um, yeah, I hope I hope as listeners, uh, you at least listen to this. You go, yep, I can see this in my school. I can see this in my classroom. I can see this in my curriculum. Uh, gave you some food for thought. So um, I thought this has been fantastic. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk on before we wrap up with our exit ticket questions? Um, no, I think we covered a lot of ground. I think we could probably do another hour if you want. Um, I think we probably could do. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll bring you back around for uh, round two in the future. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, dive more into uh, contemporary uh, theory and, and contemporary education. And uh, well, the, what was the thing that Bonnie, uh, new materialism, all we right. didn't that yet? Uh, that sounds like <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's going to be over my head or not. I'm going to have to do some more research on it. But um, yeah, well, but I mean, I, you know, it is interesting the way our conversation developed. And I think it's um, I think it is relevant. Um, I, I cared very much about my time as a K-12 teacher. And it was actually very difficult for me um, to leave and go to go to get my PhD and do higher ed. That was hard. Um, and I almost quit, by the way, um, numerous times <laughs> because I wasn't sure that it was going to be as valuable. You know, I wasn't sure. I felt like wheels were spinning. And actually, it was a class in curriculum theory that changed all that. <laughs> Excuse me. But and what I say about that first class in curriculum theory is that it gave me some language for what I felt in my gut about what was important about teaching. That's, that's where I said, okay, now I know what I want to do. Right. And that's, that is relevant to what you're talking about is finding those positive spaces, valuing the work of teachers, right. Valuing the spaces in which they do them. Mm -hmm. Right. And then hopefully working with them to one, create more and maybe more effective, opportunities to positively impact uh, students. That's the project. You know, I did a lot of, I, I've done a lot of community-based research, a lot of um, educational research, and, and, you know, we had mission statements and vision statements and all those kinds of things, but unofficially, when I worked with um, staff and graduate students and, and even community partners, 
what I would always say is like, listen, our job is to help people that help kids. Right. Period. That's the job. <laughs> and and yeah. I still feel that way. That's my job now. Right. Yeah. Now there's lots of different ways to do that. Right. Um, lots of different ways and people work differently than I do. And that's cool too. But that at the, at its root is the job. That's the job. <laughs> I love it. All right. Yeah. Well then let's uh, take it away. Let's move into our exit ticket questions. These are the same four yeah. questions that I ask every guest who comes on. And the first one is, do you have a favorite book that you recommend teachers go read? <laughs> I got a lot of favorite books. Um, <laughs> uh, I thought about this a little bit. Um, so actually right now I would say um, if, if you haven't, you need to go get a copy of Bettina Loves. Um, we want to do more than survive. Abolitionist teaching and the pursuit of educational freedom. Uh, I've known Bettina for, you know that one. Uh, it's come up once or twice before on this podcast. So um, yeah, anything that comes up twice, I have to go get. <laughs> That's the yeah, rule I made to. for myself. You need to. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so I've known <laughs> Bettina for a, for a while, um, and this is kind of a crystallization. I think her work has been building up to this point. Um, powerful speaker. There's a ton of stuff online and she's created um, the abolitionist teaching network, which you can also access, I think at abolitionist teaching network.org. And I guess we can post some stuff. Yeah. We'll link it, link everything in the show notes. Yep. But they're doing really powerful work. um, But that is an important book. Um, And not, not maybe, okay. So maybe I do want to be controversial, but like, you know, everyone is kind of talking about Ibram Kendi's, um, how to be anti-racist, mm-hmm. very popular, famous book right now. Mm-hmm. I actually think this is the better book. Okay. Um, I read them, you should read that one too, but I actually yeah. think this is a better book. Um, and her approach is just, um, like I said, the accumulation of a, of a career of, of working on some of these issues around intersectionality, about social justice, about community organizing, about anti-black racism, white supremacy comes together in this book in a way that's simply just just beautiful um and powerful and challenging and can can be rough at times um but everything that we should need as teachers that's right that's right so that that's my first choice i will say also that um on a different tack one of my favorite books about um teacher education Okay. It's called The Beautiful Risk of Education by Gert Biesta. And I think, I, one, just those, just think about that title, right? Yeah. The Beautiful Risk of Education. And he's a philosopher, but I think it's pretty accessible. Um, where, one, let's acknowledge the beautiful part of what educators do. It's an amazing, beautiful, magical thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And we both hinted at it a couple times here tonight, <laughs> yeah. right? Yep. But then the second word is risk, right? Yeah. Is that there are no guarantees here, right? And that's part of what learning is, right? And so much of what's happening in ed reform, again, not new, we've been down this road before, but really, you know, whether it's standardization or high stakes testing or merit pay, you know, any of these things yeah. of thinking that we can somehow take the risk out of it, we can guarantee this thing called learning is just flat wrong, right? We can't, it's not how it works. Um, But what that means is 
educators take risks, right? We're trying mm-hmm. to reach, we're trying to reach students. Um, and anytime, anytime you try something new, that's a mini that's risk. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think we need to be honest about that. And it, when we're going to fail, that's the other piece, yeah. right? As educators, we all know, right? We're going to fail. The question is, what do we do with that failure? Yeah. Right. That, again, kind of the ethical question. Yeah. So that was two pretty different books, but I think if I was going to give two, that, that would be the two. Yeah, perfect. And they will be, again, linked up in the show notes. <laughs> Question two is, uh, what resource would you recommend teachers go check out? Uh, this could be maybe a little more along the lines of what you do. If it's not, that's okay, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, I think you should check out Abolitionist um, Teaching Network. I think they're part of what they're doing is trying to compile resources there. You know, I don't know that I would point to specifics necessarily but i what i would say is in my experience one of the most powerful things we can do i'm not trying to make a joke here but is to make spaces for teachers to come together right one of the best things about graduate programs in education is really you've just created a space for teachers to come and talk and learn from each other um, for a couple years mm-hmm. and that in and of itself is is magical right you know mm-hmm. so for me i can see it right is when I walk into a classroom, I'm getting ready to teach. There's already a few folks there. And what are they doing? They're talking about their day. They're talking about what worked, what didn't work, right? They might be venting a little bit, but it's usually not too bad or, they're, or they wouldn't do the master's class, right? <laughs> yeah. But venting, look, that's a thing we got to do. It too. is, yeah. Yep. We get frustrated. We get, you know, flummoxed. And, and, yeah. But those, creating those spaces, yeah. And I, yeah. I, um, I, somebody mentioned it before, but uh, anytime you can attend a conference, it's kind of the same thing, right? Yep. Um, you know, that if I could go back and tell uh, first year teacher John, it would be go to a conference because not only do you, you're surrounded by teachers who are doing the same thing as you, you're hearing so many new ideas. Yep. I, I learned, I got like half of what I taught the rest of that year was from that conference. So. And everybody's fired up. So you, you walk yeah. out of there invigorated. Right. And you also start to build a larger network of, of folks that you can yeah. lean upon. That's true. And there used to be money for that. Right. State legislatures used to support state level teacher organizations. You know, I was very involved in the North Carolina um, Social Studies Association and in Indiana as well. My first faculty job was at Indiana University. And all those budgets have been cut. It used to be seen sure. and valued as a really important part of what teachers yeah. do. And you're learning from each other. Right. You know, so when I think about what higher ed can do, I mean, not that we don't have expertise, because I do think we do have some expertise that's useful. But one of the most powerful things we can do is we can hopefully garner some funding and some resources to create some of those spaces for teachers to come together. Uh, Almost that is enough, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So check out check out some spaces for you as a teacher. (laughs) Good resource. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would be then? So question number three is what would be your advice for a teacher who maybe is just starting out their career? Well, we just gave them a, a little, little taste did, of it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but at my, what I would and have said for years and years is find your people, find your people. Um, you have got to find your people. And, um, and what I mean by that is find the people that care deeply about what you care about, that are passionate about the work of teaching, and the work that, that goes on between teachers and learners, right? And that's what drives them every day. And then you hold, first year teacher, right? That's the question, right? 
And uh, new, yeah, new, just, new, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's critical. It's critical. Yeah. Find those people and hold on to them for everything you can. Yeah. And the flip side of that, of course, and, and I don't like to focus on the negative, but there are people in your school building that you need to stay as far away from as you possibly can. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Unfortunately, right? And they're usually in the teacher's lounge. Um, yeah. Well, almost a cliche. But, but you can't afford, particularly in those first few years, you can't afford to uh, let anyone um, – you know, suck away that we used to call them vampires actually. Right. <laughs> take that passion yeah. that beats you down with it. Right. Yeah. And criticize you for your enthusiasm. You do not have space for that. And so stay away from them as much as you can, but find your people. And I often, you know, the thing about one of the things too, I would also say it just in general, maybe about this whole conversation is sure. remember that students always know more than you think they know. <laughs> they always do. Right. Especially may, with older siblings, yes. Yeah, well, they may not know what you want them to know. That's different. But they know more like the two teachers. I'm assuming a lot of teachers listen to this, right? But the two uh-huh. teachers that have started dating and they think nobody knows, faculty don't know, <laughs> students know, right? I guarantee you, right? They're, they're the eyes of the school, yes. <laughs> they know. You think you know. <laughs> they know. But anyway, so I would, one of the things I did is I talked to students about other teachers. And I wanted to know who they thought, who were the best teachers. Yeah. And then I sought them out. And so in my experience at a high school, uh, it was me and the physics teacher. And, you know, because across the board, everyone talked about what a great teacher this guy was. So I'm going to spend time with that guy. What's he doing? How's he pulling it off? You yeah. know? And then there, there's these weird experiences where these, you know, after being there a couple of years, you know, students would see me and him together and it would kind of blow their minds. Like, social, studies social studies and physics, they, they don't match. <laughs> That's oil and water. <laughs> How are they friends, right? You know? but no, but that, your, I mean, find yeah, your find your people, um, stick with it because uh, I've said it before too, but uh, a high tide raises all ships. So when you find the people who are doing the same thing as you, you know, it's just, you, you get together with them and you just raise each other up. Yeah. Um, and I, I've, I've found that too with a, a couple of people in my career as well. So um, I love that advice. Really important. Yeah. Uh, and then question number four to wrap us up is if anybody wants to reach out to you, has any questions about we, what we talked about, uh, where would be a place to find you? Uh, so I am on the Twitter. The Twitter. Uh, Twitter. <laughs> um, I think it's just at Rob Health and Mind, mm-hmm. um, but maybe we can post it as well. Yep. And um, uh, my work email would be fine too, which is you probably need to look it up because it's healthandbine underscore rj at mercer.edu. Why do they make it so difficult? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. But, but those, yeah, those are two great places. Uh, you're, I'm sure you're very accessible for both of those. So um, again, everything will be linked in the show notes. So uh, yeah, Rob, health and mind. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, this was, I, I think this was a great conversation. It definitely got my gears turning. Hopefully it got some other people's gears turning as well. So um, thank you so much. Right on. Thanks for what you do. And there you have it. Yeah. A uh, big, big, big thank you to Dr. Robert health and mind for joining me. Um, yeah, I got to be honest with you. Sometimes I come out of these conversations uh, and I reflect a little bit and it's hard for me to pick out uh, one thing that I think will be beneficial to highlight uh, as we wrap up the episode. But for this episode, I came up with like six or seven things right away and I was trying to narrow it down to which one I wanted to highlight at the end here. Um and I couldn't. So I hope you bear with me. There's a couple of things that I came out of this episode with that I hope uh, I can highlight here for you that will be beneficial. 
First one is uh, what I used for the opening audio, and that is curriculum is exclusionary by default, right? We can't possibly teach everything. So naturally, there are some things that we are not going to teach. And it's important to take the time to reflect and analyze what are the things that I am teaching? What are the things that I'm not teaching? And what is that telling the subconscious of my students by either choosing to or choosing not to teach these things, right? Um, So, and along those lines, number two would be to reflect, right? Uh, Taking 30 seconds to a minute at the end of each class and saying, you know, what was it that made that class great? What was it that really made that class not so great? Um, Taking that moment to reflect is so important. Uh, Number three would be kids pick up on more than we think they do, <laughs> right? So uh, you never know when it's when you're going to have that chance to leave that lasting impression on a student. Um, and unfortunately, that can be a good or a bad impression, right? So um, we just got to be ready to be on our toes and be the positive light. And uh, even if we are at our last nerve uh, to make sure that we, we just stay positive for the students, because again, we never know when we're going to leave that impression. Um, number, what am I at? Four? I don't know. (laughs) Look for ways to create spaces and places, right? This is what we wrapped up the conversation with was, um, create those spaces and places, not just for learning to happen, but for the larger goal of creating a more equitable school system, um, and overall a more equitable society, right? Spaces and places can play such an important role in, creating those spaces and places for those things to happen, right? So be aware of of what your classroom looks like or what your school looks like or what your community looks like and how can you create a new space for learning and equity to happen. And then the last thing is um, I came up with this analogy as I was reflecting and I, I, it makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. I hope you appreciate it. Um, but if you think about a pilot, um, you know, the everything that if you ever go up to the front of a plane, you look at their, their it's not a dashboard, but <laughs> you look at what they're looking at as they're flying this incredibly huge aircraft, and they've got probably hundreds of different dials that they are adjusting and looking at as they fly. And I like to think teaching is kind of like that, right? You go throughout your day, throughout your week, throughout your year, and maybe one day you just switch one dial, right? You just focus on changing one thing, improving one thing. And that might even be improving just a single student's day, right? That's just one little dial. And then tomorrow you get to pull a different lever. And then the day after that, you know, eventually you've, you've shifted the trajectory of the plane because you're rerouting around a storm. I don't know. Um, but you can't get from point A to point B very quickly. It takes time, right? And it takes these micro adjustments throughout your year and throughout your career um, before you become an excellent teacher and before uh, you know your your kids leave your classroom uh, knowing that you've made a difference for them all right um, and that again that doesn't happen overnight so I hope with these episodes with these podcasts that you're listening to each one is just a dial that you're that you can change that you can switch just a little bit um, and over time you know you will get from point A to point B uh, and land safely. 
uh, as my analogy comes to a close. <laughs> anyway, um, just to wrap you up again, anything that we mentioned on this episode, again, can be found on our show notes page, jabbity.com slash show 26, where you will also find affiliate links to any of the books mentioned. So you can purchase those books uh, through that affiliate link in order to support this episode and this podcast. Um, you can also check out uh, some of the Jabadoo original teacher tees. Those are available there. There's a link there. And finally, you can sign up for uh, the weekly email newsletter. Again, just to remind you that an episode has released and or if I'm doing something special, uh, I will make sure to let you know through that. And with that, uh, we come to the end of the episode. So until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. And that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.